Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Well, greetings and welcome to another edition of Fridays with a Scientist. Today, we have Chuck Burr from West Central. Uh, so you cover Lincoln, Logan, and McPherson counties? Yep, and several other counties around that area. Excellent. How are things out there today? A little misty today. Actually got a little bit of precipitation. I, I don't think it's going to amount to much, but at least keeps the fire danger down for a couple more days. That's good. You guys had a lot of high fire danger days out there the last couple yeah. of weeks. Yeah, it's it's been the last couple of weeks. You know, up until about six months ago, the last two years was really bad. A lot of a lot of grass fires in the area. So appreciate some moisture. Yeah, well, we even had some grass fires over this side of the state last fall, which is pretty unusual for us. I know it's a little more common out there, and you guys were doing fairly well on moisture for a while this year. But I know that Mother Nature hasn't been quite as cooperative here the last two or three months. Yeah, we did get some moisture during the growing season, which was a blessing. But yeah, it's kind of shut off again. Uh, haven't got too much uh, once harvest got into full swing. Yeah, well, hopefully we pick up some moisture at the end of the winter and give the uh, top part of the profile some some moisture out there, so the rangelands can stay in good shape and everybody, you know, wheat farmers, can be happy. Uh, speaking of farming, there's uh, something out your air out in your area. I believe it's uh, if it's not at West Central, it's uh, near West Central, right? It's called uh, Taps, which is is that testing ag performance solutions. Yeah, Taps is testing ag performance solutions. It was started here at the West Central Research Extension and Education Center back in 2017. So uh, finished our seventh growing season and uh, working on the report right now, just uh, doing some calculations and writing the results up. So we can get those printed off and ready to hand out at our banquet coming up in January. Cool. Yeah, we'll get to the banquet here in just a couple of minutes. And I kind of mentioned the banquet a little bit uh, on my Outlook podcast last week uh, or two weeks ago. Um, I guess it was, uh, it was TAP started by Darren Rudnick. Yeah, Darren Rudnick, myself, uh, Dr. Matt Stockton, our extension economist here. Uh, Rodrigo Worley was a cropping system specialist at the time. Uh, he was with us for maybe six or eight months, and then he moved off to Wisconsin. So, yeah, Darren, Matt, and I pretty much started the program here in North Platte. Rodrigo. Did he have a wife named Leah by chance, or does he have a wife named Leah? He does, yep, yep. Okay. I Yes, I knew them when they were – we were grad students around the same time. So I, I didn't realize he was in Wisconsin. Good for him. Yep, he uh, just got uh, fully – or not fully promoted, received promotion and tenure. Uh, here a couple months ago so he's he's been doing a good job up there the last six or so years see is he in madison or one of the other satellite campuses uh, i believe he's in madison yeah okay very good so what's kind of the concept of taps from my understanding i haven't been to the facility but it's sort of where producers from around the state or even around the region could come in and they could do some different trials some different experimentations and you guys give out different awards for different categories is that right Yep. Yeah. Basically what TAPS is, is we host a series of farm management competitions. Uh, the competition is basically held at the Research and Extension and Education Center here in North Platte. Uh, the participants basically tell us what to do and we implement those decisions on uh, kind of medium-sized plots here at the Research Center. Uh, our big uh, decisions are uh, grain marketing. They tell us how much of their production they would sell at what time and, and what uh, marketing tool they utilize. They select a crop insurance package. Uh, the agronomic decisions, they tell us what hybrid to plant at what seeding rate. And then they also have uh, options of applying nitrogen. We have pre-plant and side dress, and then five fertigation options at 30 pounds each as we go through the 
uh, vegetative and early reproductive growth stages, and then also how to irrigate or how much to irrigate and when to apply that water. So really kind of the focus is we provide a lot of data. Uh, you know, we've got a, a weather station at the field edge. We've got satellite imagery. We've got drone imagery uh, that they can look at. They would have a plant sensor or a soil moisture sensor in one of their replicated plots. So they can pretty much pull up their phone and uh, see, you know, what's, what's the weather been doing in North Platte? What's the forecast? And what's the soil profile looking in, in my plot? And it, it's it's all done in the same field. And, and to me, that's really the key. Um, you know, if, if you have it in multiple fields in other parts of counties or across the state, you know, then weather variability and soils, climbing, you know, that, that's oh, a absolutely. huge player. If it's all in the same field, then at the end of the year, uh, if a participant doesn't do so well, um, they really have nobody to blame but themselves and the decisions they've made. Or if they do well, you know, that's a result of the decisions and utilizing that information and technology that we provide to help make those decisions. Um, it's really a, a kind of a gut check, if you will. Um, you know, if you're on the top end of the spectrum, you you feel pretty good about yourself. But if you're in the middle or bottom, you're like, OK, why, why didn't I do better? Why did they do better than me? And um, because we have the marketing and cost of production included in there, it, it really tells them what it's costing them to not be more efficient. Uh, maybe to select a different hybrid or put on less nitrogen or less water. You know, not, not only are, are the yields there, but, you know, what's it costing me in the end? That, that That's really the big wake-up call. Yeah, no, I, I think this is a really cool concept, but it it almost strikes me as real-life Sim Farm. I don't know, is there actually something called Sim Farm? I know there's something called Sim City. I used to love the Nintendo version, like, back in the late 80s, early 90s. But uh, so the the field itself is this is a typical quarter uh, section plot or uh, field. Uh, it, it's on yeah one of our research sites. The uh, actual field is probably thirty five acres. It, it's a quarter oh, turn of it. Um, not even close to quarter section then. No, no, and the plots are um, twelve to fourteen rows wide by about one hundred and thirty to one hundred and sixty feet long, depending on the competition. So uh, large enough that we can use a yield monitor to, to take yields off of it. Uh, large enough that we can use, you know, a six-row planter, six-row combine to harvest with. Um, the other thing that we do is uh, the, the very first year or two, we found out what a huge player hybrid variability uh, is in terms of water and nitrogen efficiency, and uh, was really keeping our statistical measures down by having everybody plant different hybrids. So we decided to plant, you know, the six rows of what the participant wanted to plant, but then we also had a base hybrid or reference hybrid that gets planted in everybody's plot. So we can look at the same hybrid over all these different water nitrogen decisions. And that's just very interesting to, to start looking at that compared to the different variability, you know, from hybrid. There's some hybrids that do very well with low water and low nitrogen and other hybrids that kind of fall on their face if you, if you don't feed them like a racehorse. Sure. And this basically gives the farmers the incentive to, they completely design the experiment themselves to a certain degree. The crops, is it, is it mostly corn or corn, soy, wheat? What else? Yes. Yeah, so so typically, like on our sprinkler, sprinkler corn competition, it would be in a corn, soybean rotation. So they're, they're managing the corn crop that, you know, was growing on previous crop of soybeans. Uh, we've got uh, sprinkler and subsurface drip irrigated corn competitions. Uh, we also have a sorghum competition. We just moved that to Grant at the Stump International Wheat Center in Grant this last year. Um, and then we started a popcorn competition here in North Platte, and that's under the sprinkler as well. And then a colleague, Cody Creech, um, out at Sydney at the High Plains Ag Lab, uh, does a winter wheat competition out there as well. Excellent. 
So do you have any rain-fed competition or is there any of that's just purely rain-fed and not under any sort of irrigation? Yeah, so our sorghum piece, uh, we ended up moving to a system, irrigation system that wasn't variable rate, so the producers didn't have the opportunity to, to make their irrigation decisions. So we added a, a rain-fed piece to that, so they're managing rain-fed plots as well as irrigated plots other, other than the irrigation management. So uh, there's a little bit of that there, but most of it's on irrigated basis. Yeah, that's kind of what I figured. I mean, if you're trying to simulate conditions for most of the state of Nebraska, other than parts of the, you know, the very far east where there's basically all rain fed, you know, and you're, you're wanting to do the irrigation. Plus, you're also going to get a much better crop over there if you have the irrigation. And if you're trying to actually replicate conditions further east, you get a little bit more regular rainfall, you know, at least to say, well, you're putting the water on artificially, but it's still getting water, which would be maybe more reflective of what you would uh, maybe typically get in parts of uh, Iowa or Illinois or Indiana. Um, in, in terms of the irrigation decisions, though, are, I mean, are those, do they have to say by like at planting time, say, well, I'm only going to put on X amount of treatments or X amount of water, or do they... Yeah. How, how do they make those decisions? Are they mostly during the season? Yeah, they'd be in-season decisions. So once we start the irrigation decision, and that varies from year to year, depending on if we've had any spring moisture or not. Uh, what's and actually probably didn't have any to start with. <laughs> right. So uh, during the season, you know, on Mondays and Thursdays by like 10 o'clock, they would need to tell us if they want water applied or not. And it could be five hundredths up to an inch, you know, so zero to an inch, five inch or five hundredths increments on the sprinkler. And then our SDI is a quarter inch increments. Uh, but they they let us know by 10 o'clock that day if they want water applied. And then that water is applied over the next about 24 hours. So um, it's I mean, it's up today. They can pull up their phone and see if we had rainfall in North Platte the previous day and uh, decide if they want to irrigate or not. They can look at their soil moisture probe or their plant sensor and uh, see if they want to water or not, and then apply some water and see how it turns out. Are there any maximum or absolute limits on how much water a certain plot can get in terms of the irrigation? In a uh, yeah, it would just be two inches per week maximum. We do irrigate twice a week, and the maximum we can apply is one inch. So the most they could put on on a week time period would be two inches. Um, it's been really interesting to me to see the variability or the range and how much water is applied. Uh, I always have a few participants that put on, you know, maybe a half inch or a couple inches, just trying to see how efficient they can be. Uh, last year, we had some participants put on close to 20 inches of water. So, you know, 15 to 18 inches range in terms of how much water is applied. And that that really kind of shocks me. You know, I mean, they've got all the technology available, soil moisture sensor in their plot, the weather station data. You know, at the edge of the field, they've got satellite imagery, drone imagery, all these tools that they could be utilizing uh, to make really informed decisions. Some some of our participants are not utilizing that and and just putting on a, a ton of water that's not needed. Interesting. Yeah, I would have. I, I guess I would have thought that participants that were in those plots and that had that kind of information would be maybe more hesitant to put on extra water if they, you know, if the soil showed that yeah, there's still still some moisture here. Maybe that's just second nature for some people to say, I just keep, just add water constantly. Yeah. And maybe that's the way they manage at home. And, you know, uh, a lot of our producers are very successful doing that, get really good yields. Um, but I, I think when they start competing, you know, within the same field, then then that's when they start to question maybe what they've done 
at home and, and within the competition as well. The, the other thing we do in TAPS is we do not announce who Farm 22 is, for example, unless they're in the top three of an award category. We don't want to embarrass somebody for maybe not doing a really great job, or maybe they're trying something really crazy in TAPS, which is the place to do it, you know, rather than try it on, on their operation at home. So we, we really encourage that and promote them, you know, try something really crazy or different and just see how it works out or not. Uh, it, it's better to do that in your TAPS field and maybe not win an award, but at least you don't lose the farm by learning something. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it would make, it makes sense to me that if you had this area where you can try some new things, why wouldn't you do it? I mean, I mean, how many people actually typically participate in this program in a given year? Yeah, it varies by competition and subsurface drip. We can take 16 participants. The sorghum, we've got 18. I think you had 37 or 38 in sprinkler corn this last year. Popcorn, we had 13 in that one. So it just varies by competition. And that's like uh, farms, we call them. That might be an individual. It might be a group of 10 people to get together and make decisions for that one, one operation. So uh, we encourage that as well. You know, if you got a, a group of buddies at home that would like to try this, this would be the place to do that. Uh, they can learn a lot from each other just talking about how they make decisions or why maybe they make the decisions they do. Maybe some of their past history that goes into those decisions that they make now uh, can learn a lot just talking from each other you know, in addition to playing the TAPS game and seeing how they do well, do there. Yeah, no, no, I think that concept makes perfect sense to me. And I also think it's good that they all essentially have access to the same information data sets. They all, so they, every single plot has soil moisture sensors. At what, what different depths do you um, have uh, soil moisture sensors? Yeah, and it depends on the sensor, but a lot of them, you know, would start at six to eight inches and, you know, every six or eight inches down to 36 inches or so. Okay. Uh, so you're, yeah. They, yeah. They get to choose which, which soil moisture sensor they want. Uh, we ask for their top two or three choices out of the five or six that we have available. And then depending on availability and how quickly they respond, they may get their second choice, but uh, typically they, they, you know, get their first or second choice and soil moisture sensor. And again, that gives them a chance to try that sensor out, make decisions based on that, see how it turns out. And, and a lot of them have done that in taps and then gone home and, and placed those sensors in their fields at home and uh, have that experience already when they go to their operation. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. Because especially if you're irrigating, having those soil moisture sensors in the field, particularly if you can, if you know they're reliable, you know they're giving you something useful, and you have decent knowledge of your soil, then you know that could probably save you uh, quite a bit of water. And I, I'm I'm going to just go out in a limb here and assume that the participants that put on put on the most water are not necessarily always the ones that have the highest yields. Is that would that be fair? That would be correct. I'll just give you an example. A couple of years ago in our subsurface drip competition, we had two participants tie for the high yield. We hit 311 bushels that year. Uh, one what participant, yeah, really, really high yields. And that's, it's a good feel. I mean, we've got good soil organic matter and it's kind of protected from wind storms and stuff like that. But yeah, 311 bushels, one participant put on like nine inches of water and about 160 pounds of nitrogen. Other one put on like 18 inches of water and 280 pounds of nitrogen. So huge range, but you have to have the same yield at the end of the year. It, it's really kind of kind of a wake up call to, you know, how much do we really need to have out there? Yeah. And with regard to like satellite imagery, are you getting um, satellite imagery that has resolution that can actually distinguish between different plots? I mean, those are pretty small plots. Yeah, I mean, we we send uh, 
the, the maps to the satellite companies. They, they overlay that uh, onto the imagery that they provide so you can look and pick out your plots on there and see how they look compared to the rest of the field. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming those plots are not publicly available information to, say, people like myself. <laughs> uh, so the information is not available until the end of the year. Okay, so we don't want somebody managing their plot because they watch somebody else maybe put on less nitrogen or less water. So any decisions that are made, we don't publish that information until that decision is over. Like after we do our last fertigation, you know, all the nitrogen's on, nobody can put on any more. Uh, then we send a note out saying, here, this is what people have applied for nitrogen. You know, how do you think you did uh, after looking at that? So at the end of the irrigation season, we let everybody know how much people irrigated. Uh, but again, those decisions are done, so we're not releasing information during the season on how other people are managing their their tap spots. Oh yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I was more referring to say like at the end of the season, say like the winter, if you're trying to do um, reflective session on the past season, if you can go back and take a look at some of the past data from from that season or from past seasons, that's really where I was getting at. It sounds like that's the case. Yeah, I mean that the data is all there. We've got it all in our repository. So yeah. Give, uh, give me a call or Chris Proctor's working with the TAPS program with uh, Redneck departing us heading down south. So, uh, yeah, we can uh, share some information and, and see what you can draw, what kind of conclusions you can draw. Yeah, no, that'd be interesting. So in, in terms of rules, then you clearly there's um, a certain amount of time you probably have to plant by. Or actually, you guys do all the planting, right? Yeah, we do the planting. Yeah, we do all the work. Uh, you make the decisions. We do the work. It's all imposed in that same field. Uh, we harvest and print up the results and give out awards. We, we haven't talked about awards yet, but we do give um, the most profitable award that they'll get a check for $1,500. The most efficient will get a check for $1,500. Uh, that's in terms of water and nitrogen efficiency. And then we give another award, the yield award, highest yield. Um, that's a base of $500, but we, we adjust that based on how profitable you were to get that high yield. So we don't want somebody to go spend a ton of money on water, nitrogen, and, you know, just trying to win that yield award, um, they might get a check for $220, you know, if they're not very profitable getting that high yield. Right, right. No, I think that makes sense. Um, so I guess in terms of the participants, like, oh, I, I know what I was going to ask you, uh, do you, are you allowed to vary the planting date or are they allowed to say, I want to plant, you know, on May 10th, or is it based like whenever you can get out in the field plant, that's planned and that's sort of the way it is? Yeah, so so they make they have to make their planning decisions. So uh, seeding rate and hybrid selection by the 10th of April, and then we'll get the seed in, you know, in the next week or so. Uh, when it's ready to plant the uh, end of April, first part of May, we're in the field, we plant all the plots the same day. Uh, that way, that's that take another variable factor out of the, the equation, you know, trying to reduce as much variability as we can. Sure. So you have, at least in every plot, you have some of the same hybrid plant on the exact same day. And beyond that, it's a matter of managing water, nitrogen, and, you know, whatever. Yep, seeding rate. Yep, exactly. Yep. And then they all make their own individual decisions on what the type of insurance they want on that crop and how they would market it. And I think it's really important that the financial aspect is in there because I think that often kind of gets overlooked. That's something that we are uh, trying to emphasize in Weather Ready Farms going forward is that financial uh, resilience component is there. I mean, if, if the farmers are not profitable, if they're not making money, then they're not going to be able to do 
changes that make their operations more um, ecologically resilient, for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah. You know, once you put the profitability numbers on that, and, and we've had bankers look at our results, and they're like, yeah, you know, you, you're seeing results like my clientele base. Well, the very first year we did it in 2017, about half of our TAPS participants made money and half lost money. Uh, just weren't real great prices back in 17. And we had several bankers say, you know, unfortunately, that reflects my clientele base. About half of mine made money and the other half lost money. Um, to me, the key is looking at how you rank compared to somebody else. I mean, from top to bottom, we'll have a range of three to $500 per acre, not per field, three to $500 per acre difference wow. in profitability based on you know how you spend your money for water and nitrogen and how, how good of a job you do marketing. Um, one of the questions I get most often is, you know, after a local farm sale, you know, how can my neighbor afford to outbid me and buy that piece of dirt and, and pay for that? Well, if they're, if they're $300 per acre more profitable, they can run the price up pretty, pretty good. And, you know, cash rents, the same kind of a deal. You see some higher cash rents in the area. And if they're the guys that are really managing their expenses, really watching it, you know, getting the most bang for their water, nitrogen dollar and, and seed dollar and do a good job marketing, you know, they, they can afford to push those prices up and, and they're still making money at that. Yeah. The participants, I'm assuming they can come back year after year, or is there a limit how many times you can be involved in the project? Yeah, I don't think we've ever limited anybody yet. Uh, uh, we've had several that have competed, you know, several years. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite groups is the Perkins County group. Ted Tejan manages a group. Uh, first, it was all of his neighbors. There was about 10 neighbors that would meet at the coffee shop and they would make their decisions. Now, now the dads have kind of moved on and, and not competing, but their sons that are coming back into the operation are on this team with Ted now. So uh, that's been kind of fun to watch, you know, have a, a large group like that make decisions. And, and again, just learning from each other why they make the decisions they do. Uh, Ted told us he's learned more from his neighbors than maybe the TAPS program as a whole. So uh, that's part of the benefit, you know, learning from your peers, seeing how other people do things, their approach, and is it is it profitable and is it efficient? Yeah, no, that makes good sense. And I, I think that's outstanding that this program allows for that collaboration between neighbors and farmers. Yeah, I think yeah. a lot of times the idea is that, uh, you know, the peer, your peer group could be most effective in terms of actually getting people to make necessary adjustments in their operation or to make, you know, evolve and adapt and whatever in their operation. And I, I, I absolutely think that's fantastic that uh, they, um, you know, that they do this together year after year, that they really learn some from each other. And you, you kind of wonder if they just don't start making like some sort of handshake agreement. So, well, okay, you do this and I'll do this. And we'll just kind of see <laughs> what happens. Like just some, you know, in, um, sort of ad, ad hoc experimentation, are, are most of the participants from, say, the western two-thirds of Nebraska, do you get people from the eastern side of the state? That to oh, yeah, I mean, we've state? had participants from down in Beatrice and Fremont, down in the Lincoln area. Uh, we've got participants from Kansas and Colorado. Uh, in our popcorn competition, we've actually got a participant from France. And I think one of our sprinkler competitions in, in the European Union as well. So uh, most of our individuals never, ever visit their plots. They're managing this this farming operation with the cell phone in the hand with all the data we provide. Yeah, they don't come and take I mean, a few people will come take a look at their plots, but 95% don't ever step a foot in their plot during the season. Right. And I, I know a lot of extension educators would say, you should always go scout your fields, always go scout your fields. But in reality, 
Um, not saying that farmers don't scout their own fields, but in reality, for a lot of the season, people have farms in multiple counties. That's pretty common now. And a lot of times you're you're looking at data remotely. So I think this is actually uh, simulating very well what they probably, to a certain degree, do in reality with their own operations, trying to do things um, remotely and make decisions yeah. based on remote data. Yeah. Well, and a lot of them, you know, can start and stop their pivot with their phone nowadays. So, right. uh, you know, back in the day when you had an inch of rain at night, if you wanted to check your pivots off, you had to get up and get on your four-wheeler and run out to the center of the pivot and turn it off. But now you can see the forecast or maybe Eric Hunt says, you know, you're going to get an inch of rain in North Platte tonight. Well, I'm just going to shove my pivot off and see what happens. Yeah. If, if I say it's going to rain an inch, um, I hope it does. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I hope people aren't making decisions just based solely on what, uh, what I say, because uh, I'm not always right. <laughs> yeah. um, so I guess in terms of um, people that maybe haven't participated before, but are interested, uh, website is, was it like taps.unl.edu? Yeah, taps.unl.edu. I've actually run into a couple of people that have never been to one of our programs. I mean, they've never been to a field day or a banquet or anything. Uh, but they heard about us, you know, they follow us on Twitter. They go to our, our TAPS webpage and pull up our archived reports. They, they'll look at that report as soon as it comes out. And I've actually met participants uh, or people that have made changes on their farming operation based on just reading that report. So a ton of great information in there. You know, people start to question, you know, well, where do I think I would rank? you know, in this competition, uh, giving this this type of data and stuff and start questioning what they do on their own farming operation. They've actually made some changes. Again, never been physically in person to one of our events. Just read that report. And our participants, you know, 95% of them tell us, you know, that report is the Bible. A lot of good information in there. Yeah, well, it's great that it, you that program also scales up in a way that people that aren't actually true participants read it you know, they can interpret it very, very well since they probably, some of them probably been farming for many, many years and they're very knowledgeable. They can take that and say, oh yeah, they, they try, I can try this, I can try this, I'll think about this a little bit differently. Uh, if nothing else, I think it's very good that uh, it gets people think and do some reflection on how they're doing in their own operations. Yeah, we, we actually have a, a Fontenelle agronomist uh, that's competed several years with a local producer here. And he told me that TAPS has changed the questions that he gets when people are, you know, trying to decide what hybrid to plant next year. Uh, so it, it's changing the mindset. It, it's changing, you know, what data do you look at? Uh, changing how we think about things instead of, you know, just picking that hybrid that's going to give me that top yield. Well, maybe, maybe I want to cut back on nitrogen a little bit. You know, is there a hybrid out there that I can cut back on nitrogen and not impact my yield or is there a hybrid that I can plant that's maybe more water tolerant? Maybe you don't have a very good well or where there's an area of the field, you know, that that uh, I can't get a lot of water to. Um, is there a hybrid out there that, that can help me out? And TAPS has shown that that is the case. Yeah, there are there are those opportunities out there to to learn about it. Do you think TAPS has probably legitimately improved the water use and nitrogen use efficiency in the state? I think for the individuals that compete and the individuals that, uh, you know, read that report, I think definitely. I mean, we've had people tell us they're putting on 50, 60 pounds less nitrogen uh, than they were, you know, before they they learned about TAPS or competed in TAPS. Uh, I think at state as, as a whole, I think eventually we'll get to that point. 
uh, people are, again, starting to ask those questions. Can I really cut back on nitrogen? How much do I really need to have? Uh, and they're seeing, you know, like the guy that produced 311 bushels with, you know, less than the UNL nitrogen calculator and, and not a lot of water either and, and still getting those top yields. So um, th that's the exciting thing for me is is to look at, you know, what what uh, producer did we uh, recognize as, as the most efficient? What was their yield versus the top yields? Some years there's no difference. Some years there might be 10, 15, 20 bushel difference. Uh, and it really depends on, you know, how much water is available, how much rainfall did we have? Uh, did they take advantage of that rainfall or not? So uh, it, it really has, has shown me that there's a huge range in, in variability. Uh, obviously with, with irrigation, you know, whether you get rain or not, uh, but also in terms of nitrogen, you know, how much uh, mineralization and nitrogen do we get in, in years when it warms up early in the spring? Huge, huge differences in, in what our optimal rate of nitrogen is. Uh, from year to year, it can vary by 100 pounds, the optimal rate of nitrogen. So if, if you're applying that same amount of nitrogen every year, I'd say seven to nine years out, out of 10 years, you're applying way more nitrogen than you need. Uh, there might be one year out of 10 that that you may be marginal in nitrogen. But uh, yeah, really something to take a look at cutting back on nitrogen. And, and I'm not you know, recommending anybody go home and change their whole farming operation. Put some test strips out, do an on-farm research plot with different rates of nitrogen, do some replications out there, uh, take a look at it. And then, yeah, you make the decision based on that. But I, I see lots of opportunities and cut back on nitrogen. Sure. Um, it, it, in terms like how is this program funded? Is it mostly through um, entry fees or is this all grant funded? Yeah, so a lot of grants uh, like the Nebraska Corn Board, uh, Nebraska Sorghum Board, uh, U.S. Sorghum Checkoff have been very good to us. The Wheat Board supported uh, Cody Creech's wheat competition out there. Uh, been very good. We've gotten some money through the Irrigation Innovation Consortium. Uh, just in the last couple of weeks, we announced we received some funding through the NRCS. Um, and a technical agreement that's going to help expand TAPS across five states, Kansas, uh, Oklahoma, Texas, Colorado, and Nebraska. So pretty excited about that funding. Uh, I, I do go to a lot of the NRDs and say, hey, you know, give us a check or banks or insurance agents or whatever, help support the, the program. And that's how we keep it going. It, there's there's no actual cost to the participants to join. Yeah, we tell them there's a $500 fee, but I've got enough sponsors that pay the fee for them. Uh, we want them to know somebody's paying for them to compete. Uh, because I, I don't want somebody to get busy in the middle of the summer and say, well, I didn't pay for nothing. You know, I, I'm just going to not worry about that. I'm going to focus on my farming operation. We want them to know somebody's paid for them to compete. So that that helps keep them engaged throughout, throughout the season. Yeah, no, I, that's good. Uh, is there, if you had any interest from, um, say, the I states or Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, about implementing a similar program in, in those states, or do they have something similar in those states right now? Yeah, not yet. I, I did talk to a couple of extension people in Iowa that were considering doing something on dry land. Of course, they don't have a lot of irrigation there, but uh, right. Oklahoma's had a competition the last four or five years down there. Uh, they, they actually have a cotton growing competition. So if you want to be a cotton farmer for, for a season, I guess you can compete in their competition. Uh, Colorado, uh, just this last year, 2023, started their first uh, corn competition. Uh, Kansas is going to be expanding to two or maybe three competitions in 2024. Uh, so they're ramping up as well. Uh, we're adding a soybean competition at uh, Eastern Nebraska Research Extension and Education Center by Ithaca or Oahu area. 
So if you want to compete in our soybean competition at NREC, you know, get a hold of me or send a note to our taps.unl.edu uh, email address or check out our website. Good, good. Um, so you mentioned earlier that there is a banquet coming up. And would you like to talk a little more about the banquet that's coming up in January? Yeah, January 13th will be on a Saturday. It'll be at the Unis Center in Kearney, Nebraska. Um, it's a prime rib dinner and an open bar, so no cost to you. Just show up, have a great meal, you know, have a few drinks, and, and we'll announce the award winners there. We'll also hand out a, a hard copy of the booklet so you can come and learn. Uh, you know, sit down by some of these people that have competed for several years, kind of pick their brains and and learn from them as you go. Talk to the the winners at the end of the year, you know, see how they did it or their philosophies. Yeah, just just a great time to have some fun. We'll kind of celebrate the success of the program uh, the previous year. And that's kind of our ramp up again. Yeah, you can sign up for competing in TAPS in 2024. And uh, a couple months later, we'll ramp up and, and get started with the next TAPS season. So out of curiosity, do you ever have people that aren't actively farmers that get into this? Uh, we do. Uh, we actually had a farm manager uh, compete in it several years ago. Uh, you know, he he was recommending these producers to, to make decisions on ground that he kind of oversaw. Uh, so he competed and, you know, it was kind of a, a wake up call for him. The, the amount of information that you need to process through in the daily decisions. Uh, we've had NRD and NRCS individuals, uh, Nebraska Department of Environment and Energy, Nebraska Department of Natural Resource employees have competed over the years. Uh, and it's really interesting for them. You know, some of them didn't maybe didn't grow up on a farm uh, or if they did, probably didn't make the decisions that, that our producers need to make on a day to day basis now. It's just be, a lot uh, involved. It would be fun to have a competition that was just based on, uh, you know, maybe say if you could get a group of uh, 10 educators, have a competition simply for the extension educators. Uh, yeah. See, we're actually preaching if we're actually putting into practice in reality. Yeah, several years ago, we had several new educators in the area, so I mentored a team for a couple of years, so we made the decisions together. Uh, a year or two after that, I mentored two groups of ag teachers uh, that, you know, teach high school kids this information, uh, so I mentored them, and, and that has resulted in a project we just got funded uh, about nine months ago. Uh, we're developing a virtual TAPS competition uh, so it'll, it'll be available for our, our teachers in the classroom. Their students can compete within TAPS during the school year. You know, that's that's a tough part for high school or college students. You know, TAPS is it during the growing season in the summer. A lot of high school kids are kind of checked out, you know, from school for, for the summer. But uh, they'll be able to compete in the classroom and the teachers can set it up. You know, we're going to we're going to just make irrigation decisions in in this uh, run and, and we're going to do it over a six week period. Uh, so they can make the decisions and again use the same information weather soil moisture information and then have yields at the end of the year see how they do in terms of efficiency and profitability very good what do you i just guess my final question for the day would be what do you consider to be the biggest uh peril in terms of weather out there is it dry is it drought or is it hail higher winds uh, yeah, we do get some wind damage, not every year, but just about every year. Um, we finally got hailed significantly this year. We lost about half of our leaf area uh, during a hail, hail storm in July this last year. Uh, but just a lot of variability in terms of rainfall. I mean, from 8 to 10 inches per during the growing season up to over 20 inches. So uh, a lot, lot of variability from year to year. And, of course, producers deal with that, you know, every year. 
on their own farming operations. So it's, I guess, no surprise there, but it, it's interesting to see how they react to that variability. Like I said, you know, changes in how much nitrogen we really need, changes from year to year, irrigation as well. Uh, it, it just appears that uh, in a wet year, most of our participants are way over irrigating. In a dry year, quite a few of them are under irrigating. So that- It's almost like they have a set amount in mind they're going to put on regardless. Yeah, you know, probably over the years, they, they shoot for that two inches per week average, and, and that's what they're going to do, uh, regardless of, uh, you know, whether whether they need it or not. Uh, we've had a few years where the optimal rate of irrigation was three to four inches, and we've had years where it's been 14, 15 inches. So that changes hugely, and in those dry years, if, if you're short a couple inches, you're, you're probably losing 12 to 15 bushels per inch that you're shorting that crop. Uh, even though it seems like you're putting on a lot of water, if you're shorting it, you're, yeah, 12 to 15 bushels per inch that you underapply. Yeah, I'm going to guess 2022 is probably a year where you needed 15 inches. Maybe 2019 was a year you could have gotten away with maybe two or three inches total. This year probably, I'm guessing, was closer to the three than the 15, but there was yeah. some significant heat at times this year. And as you said, this is the first year that you've had, like, significant hail since you started TAPS. Yeah, at our North Platte location, we we had a couple late season, you know, mid to late September, maybe 10% leaf loss, but uh, we lost about half of our leaf area in that July storm. And uh, based on our UNL, you know, calculations on hail loss, uh, we thought maybe a 30% ding in yield, and, and we were pretty close to that. We had down about 30% of where we normally would have been. Yeah, that that's actually just given where you are in that part of the state, given that your hail risk is a lot higher than it is over here in the far eastern portion of the state, that you made it basically seven years without having a significant hailstorm go through during the middle of the year. But what you were saying is actually reflective of a lot of people's experience this growing season. Uh, the wind and hail reports this year were not terribly different than they were in 2022. The difference was in 2023, a lot of them were in late June, July, and August versus 2022. They were mostly earlier in the season when they would have had a, probably a more minimal effect on the outcome of the crop. Uh, yeah. 2022, it just kind of quit raining entirely for good portion of state in, in June, uh, if, if it even rained at all. <laughs> I think some places yeah. felt like it didn't rain at all in 2022. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, what I'm like, getting at is this year, we we did pick, start to pick up more rain in a lot of places that had it in a couple of years, but uh, in some cases we got more than we bargained for. Yeah, yeah, it's been interesting to see that over the years, you know, the variability and how do the participants uh, manage that variability that, again, they deal with on their farming operations every year. Very good. Well, I greatly appreciate you coming on today, Chuck, and you have a good rest of your day. Yeah, and encourage people to come to the banquet. You don't need to be a participant to, to show up. We have quite a few non-participants just come, want to want to have a good meal and have a few drinks and see the winners. and come prime rib and an open bar. Yeah, that's pretty hard to turn down. I'll show you how to do the to Kearney. That's, that's almost worth a two-hour trip out to Kearney. <laughs> there you go. I'd love to see you out there. Great. Thank you very much, Chuck. You bet, Eric. Bye. Bye.